You know a relationship is good if it can survive hurt or criticism. You know a relationship is good if you can rebuke or correct one another and the relationship stands firm. It shows that what binds that relationship together is true. That it's real. It's powerful. And you know a relationship is bad if it can't cope with that. Before Becca and I got married, I had a very vivid, recurring nightmare. Uh, We had to cut the guest list for our wedding. Um, And I I thought we did a good job. I thought we got it right. But there were two names that we couldn't quite get in, Ben and Will, who were very close to me. And I felt very uneasy about the fact that they had to be left out. And I had this dream where Will, who was who is a real straight talker, came up to me in my dream and confronted me and said, Ollie, you're just not my friend anymore. And and I woke up in the dream in a a sweat and a panic. It's like, Will's not my friend anymore. Um, confronted (laughs) Confronted by this. I guess there was a fear in me that he'd be hurt, uh, that he'd feel rejected. Actually, he's not like that at all. He'd cope with it very well. Now, let me ask you this morning. Are you able to take knockbacks? This was the thing in Corinth. And I think it's the thing for us too, isn't it? You see, Christians should be able to take criticism. Christianity is not a religion like any others, where knocks to your performance condemn you. Christianity does not find criticism crushing. In Christianity, my identity, my worth, my future aren't dependent on me and what I've done, but on Christ and who he is. Christians are able to be radically honest about weakness and failures. Christians are free. Christians can repent. Christians know God's lavish grace and kindness because of the cross. And so, friends, we can take loving correction. And the question is this morning, can you? Do you think you can? I wonder if you're the kind of person who tends to, though maybe you don't mean to, you tend to snap back defensively. I wonder if you notice about yourself that you are so aggressive and intolerant to criticism that those closest to you rarely give it to you. Maybe you look like you respond well when someone offers you a word of advice, but inside you're overwhelmed with bitterness and anger. Maybe it's always someone else's problem. Can you take correction? That's a question in Corinth. Could the Corinthians take criticism and correction and discipline? What might it teach us? Well, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been filled with anxiety. We saw it last, way back in chapter 2. And here, after defending his ministry, Paul picks up on the story with Corinth. We find out that um, there had been an issue in the church. There had been an offender in the church speaking ill of Paul, 
And Paul, though he badly wanted to visit, felt that he had to write a letter. If he'd come in person, there'd have been so much to sort out. There'd have been so much mess. It'd have been so painful. So he decided to write a letter. And you can imagine him sending that letter and the pain and anxiety he felt as he wrote to them, sort this mess out. Sort out this person who's, who's causing so much trouble. And so here we find Paul moving from defending his ministry to preparing them for his arrival. And I think if it were you or I, we'd be worried about that. <laughs> What's it going to be like having caused them so much anxiety and, and, and so much stress? And, and Paul so worried about what it had been like. We see Paul in verse 2, doesn't he? What does he say? Make room for me. Make room in your hearts for me. And we think it would be anxious. But look at verse 4 of our passage. Look what Paul says. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. He's not worried about this situation. And look how our passage ends in verse 16. Paul says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Even though Paul had written to them with some hard words, now he is full of comfort and joy and confidence. So that we see here that this situation involving correction and a time of grief actually turns out it wasn't quite so bad as we thought. And actually it worked out for good. And so here, friends, we find a challenge. Can we see that we ought to welcome correction and challenge? Are we going to be Christians who, who make room in our lives for the teaching of the Lord Jesus? Or will we always respond negatively? Well, let's see how Paul and the Corinthians survived criticism together and how it can be an encouragement to us. That this grief and this pain the Corinthians went through was actually a good thing. We'll see it in four ways. And the first one this morning is this. Notice first in this passage, the Corinthians' grief, their grief comforted Paul. Their grief comforted Paul. Here's Paul. And he says to this church, make room for me. And he tees it up for them in verse 2, reminding them that he wasn't the person who caused the problem in the first place. He hadn't caused them wrong. And he hasn't corrupted them like false teachers. And he isn't taking advantage of them. And he doesn't blame them for anything that's gone on. In fact, he lives and dies for them. Look, verse 3. But what's the story here? Well, pick it up in verse 5. Listen to what, how Paul explains what's gone on. Picking up on what happened when he got to Macedonia. Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his comfort coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul ended up in Macedonia. He'd had an opportunity to go to Corinth. But he decided to wait. He decided to wait to hear from Titus. And you can imagine, you can imagine the tension in his heart, having written that letter 
sort this out, discipline this issue in the, in, the, in the church life. I'm sure you know that feeling when you've had to send a text message or something. I need to cancel the meeting. I need to decline the appointment. I can't make it. And the message goes out and you wait. Oh, how are they going to respond? See, here's Paul full of anxiety, but also in, in, in persecution, fighting. Um, pressures on the outside and fear within. But at just the point where he sits there anxiously, when hope might fail, there's an arrival, the arrival of Titus. And what an encouragement it is, because in Titus's arrival, Paul sees the comfort of God. He's the God of chapter one of this letter. Here is the God to be praised who provides comfort and strength for the downcast. A God who provides encouragement and strength, and he's doing it again here. Oh, it's wonderful. I, and, I, and as I read this, I just think, gosh, look how much of a difference Titus makes to Paul. It makes me think I must never lose the opportunity to share comfort and encouragement with others. Titus's arrival brought comfort, but notice how the comfort came. Look at verse 7. The comfort came as he, Titus, told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Among a package of all sorts of things, the Corinthians' mourning and grief brought Paul joy. Now, that, I think, sounds pretty awkward and awful to us this morning. Is this guy a sadist? You know, you meet some people sometimes and you think, do they get a kick out of criticism? Uh, And we wonder, is that Paul? Well, uh, no, it's not, (laughs) as we'll see. But uh, this grief that the Corinthians went through... It was part of the right response to Paul's letter. You know, grief and pain isn't always bad. Conviction and remorse are are, are good things. It's bitterness and anger that is bad, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think we've given ourselves the impression that life should always be comfortable. Full of things that are always uplifting. And then when in the church someone uh, offers us some, some advice... Or someone else's behavior feels like an affront to us, like they're doing it that way, and maybe that's something about me. (laughs) And we think, I can't deal with this. I'm just going to keep away. I can't deal with all this now. You know, we we think that correction shouldn't be there. But see here, this, this word from Paul, well, it's followed by grief, but that's a good thing. The early church father, Augustine, used to draw an analogy between sorrow and dung. (laughs) He said, used in the wrong way and in the wrong place, both produce uncleanness. So if you're sorrowful about something good, that makes you unclean. It draws you away from God, doesn't it? But used in the right way as fertilizer, in the case of dung, used in the right way appropriately, both things bring fruit. It's there for you if it's helpful. Their grief brought Paul comfort. And it was a good response, a good response to this word of correction. I guess you know from experience, when counselling a friend or a family uh, member, and you say to them, um, do your homework. Don't leave it to the last minute. Or you say, don't stay up late playing computer games when you've got an exam the next day. And it's such a relief when they listen, and it's so heartbreaking when they don't. And here for Paul is the right response. There is grief when corrected. 
And it brings relief. It brings joy. I heard someone speaking of a, a Christian youth camp recently where they, they make it their, their focus, really, for the camp to tolerate criticism. They've got three E's they talk about on this camp. They say, expect criticism because you're not perfect. Only God is. E number one, they say, endure criticism. That's what Christians are called to, endure it. And then they say, thirdly, evaluate it. Notice they don't say, explain it all away. (laughs) They say, evaluate it, because actually, though there might be some things in there which aren't right, there's normally a kernel of truth there to be heard and listened to. And maybe there should be a fourth E about emotionally respond, be filled with grief about the thing that hasn't worked out and drive you to respond. See, that's the thing here, isn't it? It brought Paul joy. And all the more, look, listen, number two. The grief brought comfort to Paul, but their grief led to repentance. We see this in some surprising words. Look with me at at verse eight. Paul writes, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So, is, is Paul a sadist? Is he, does he get a kick out of hurting them? Well, well no. He says he wrote this letter and almost immediately, having given them this instruction, sought this mess out, he felt a grief about it. Oh, are they going to respond rightly? Am I just going to draw them further away from me? He grieved it for a while, but not in the end, because you see, verse 9, they were grieved into repenting. And so there's more joy. Here then is excitement for Paul, because as he sees that they repented, he knows they are going to make room for him. In their hearts, their grief led to repentance. And I think we need to be clear here, don't we? That this is not just sorry. Sorry is often a throwaway line today, isn't it? It's something we say kind of in a cursory way, quickly. Maybe a sort of acknowledgement of something. But often it's a lot, not, not a lot more than that. And we move on, don't we? Sorry on its own isn't repentance, is it? It might be part of the process, but it's not enough on its own. Maybe you have a temper. And you'll often catch yourself saying, sorry, but. Sorry, but, Becca, it was my diabetes that made me lose my temper with the children. It's the medication's fault. It was a traumatic experience I had, so therefore I have a temper or I didn't have a good night's sleep, so therefore that can be blamed for my outburst. You see, we know, don't we, that those things aren't good enough, are they? Those things might have some value. (laughs) Uh, But when we're angry, it's a heart issue, isn't it, regardless of our physiology. Saying sorry isn't repentance, is it? Maybe you've closed off yourself from others. And when the church wants to care for you, what you say is, I, just not right now. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just can't do that now. It's not repentance, is it? Sorry, but. Maybe you've been picked up on your relationship with people of the opposite sex. And someone taps you on the shoulder and says, I've noticed you've had a really intense relationship with that, 
that person. And you say, sorry, but, and then you decide never to talk to that person ever again. Not repentance, is it? Maybe you're tetchy, maybe you're a bit impatient, maybe your time management isn't very good. Maybe your commitment has failed others. Well, sorry is one thing, but what else is required? You see, repentance is an admission of guilt, isn't it? It's an acceptance of wrongdoing, of the consequences of the justice. It involves a feeling of sorrow, of all involved, including God himself. It includes a desire to change, that that error, that mistake wouldn't happen again. And at the heart of it all is a desire to turn from my way to God's way. That's repentance. They were grieved into repenting. I wonder, have you ever done it? In the Bible, repentance is always a joyful thing. Here, the the apostle offers correction. He seeks repentance, and it's a source of joy. Another one of the early church fathers describes Paul here, and he says he's like a father who watches his son being operated on. Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. Do you see, this is what Christianity does for us all the time. It calls us to to repent, to turn and trust Christ. In him is the ultimate cure for our souls. In him is our, our future and our hope even now. So when we receive criticism and correction, will we allow it? For in it, we might hear the call to repent, to be grieved such that our hearts desire to change. And that's a joyful thing. I wonder when was the last time it happened for you that you were moved to repent? How about asking this? This, I think, is the hardest question I'm going to ask you this morning. Hardest thing to ask you to do. Why not? Ask those closest to you, and that's why it's hard. Why not ask those closest to you in your family and friends, and here I mean ask your parents or your children, ask them, how do you feel about offering me correction? How do you feel about pointing out my faults and pointing me to Jesus? Do you feel able to do that, or am I just too prickly? What would stop you confronting me? Because I need it. Christians earnestly desire to repent and follow Jesus. That's what brought Paul joy here. Why would we ever want to put people off? Loving us enough to care enough to speak the truth to us. Now you say, I think I do this repentance business tick. But it's not that, it's not that big a deal, is it, really? Well, follow here Paul's logic. You see, those who hear a godly rebuke and repent, well, they're on the right path, aren't they? It brings Paul joy. So if we rarely move to repentance, it's a worrying sign, isn't it? If we never feel pain because of our behavior, our thoughts or our actions and want to change, it's a shame, isn't it? But on the other hand, if we do feel those things, well, what joy? What joy? To be grieved to repentance is... Wonderful. Can I ask you then to imagine? Imagine what it would be like if one Sunday the whole of Grace Church was convicted of the idols that we follow, of the materialism we go after, of the tempers, of the closed offness, of the failure to love, 
of our comfort habits. What if one Sunday we were all so grieved into repenting that that atmosphere captured us all? I think you're all, well, I think I'm thinking, oh, that'd be terrible. Maybe I can have COVID isolation that Sunday. Maybe I can have that Sunday off. And actually, while that might be awkward and uncomfortable, and no doubt it would be, (laughs) it would bring joy. As we replaced idols with trust in Christ, repentance is a joyful thing. Their sorrow worked for good. And so can we welcome that criticism and be encouraged by the fact that the Lord's at work in us? But I want us to see also this morning, thing number three, that it wasn't just the fact of the Corinthians' grief that brought Paul joy, but it was the kind of grief, the kind of uh, mourning, the kind of sorrow that they had that brought Paul comfort and joy. Notice, thirdly then, Paul's confident and joyful about these Corinthians because their grief was godly. Because their grief was godly. In other words, and I think this is a shocking thing to think, In other words, it's possible to be sad about your sin in a sinful way. It is possible to be sad about your sin in a sinful way. So notice again, verse 9, look. Paul writes, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Read on, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see there are two kinds of grief um, explained, don't you? There are two types of grief over sin. There is godly grief and there is worldly grief. Someone's put it like this. I think explain it much better than I ever could. Let me read this to you. The focus of worldly sorrow is the world. People experiencing worldly sorrow are distressed because they are losing or fear losing things the world has to offer. The loss could be reputation, job, money, family, or even sexual fulfillment. Anything that brings security, comfort, or pleasure. Some of these things are good. And some of these things are sinful. But they're all things A sad person consumed with worldly sorrow is concerned about losing stuff. Now, no matter how honourable or dishonourable that stuff is, this kind of worldly sorrow leads to death. Worldly sorrow is obsessed with keeping the objects of selfish desires. All the tears and all the pain are actually about the loss of your stuff. You're crying about the things you're about to lose and you'd like to keep. It is terrifying to think that even our sorrow over sin can be selfish and sinful. Paul says their sorrow could have been like that. They, they could have been sad about having to conduct that church discipline. They could have been sad about reputational damage. They could have been sad about a risk to a friendship, sad about the atmosphere that might have been caused, sad about losing stuff. But they weren't. They didn't have a worldly grief, these Corinthians. They had a godly grief without regret, without worry about losing stuff. You see, their sorrow wasn't about the world. They had a godly sorrow. It was about God. They were sad 
when they were convicted because they realized their relationship with God was broken, that they'd offended him. They were sad about the people and stuff involved, that the discipline would have to happen. But that wasn't what drove their sorrow. Their sorrow was driven by, by God. You see, godly sorrow is about God, and godly sorrow produces change. It marks a change between a life of self-centeredness and of worldly sorrow to a concern for God and living for his glory. You see, friends, godly sorrow produces real lasting change. And that's why Paul's so encouraged here. Look, you can see it in verse 11. See what happens when this godly sorrow. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Corinthians, you ought not to be condemned. Your response has been brilliant. Look how their hearts are changed. Eager, zeal. The odd one on the list seems to be what what punishment they've been at. I I think the point is they're they're so concerned to set things right. The idea of punishment there is that they want to execute justice. Properly, if something's wrong, well, then the consequences have to come out. They want to set things right. Look at the wonderful change that happens. Friends, this godly sorrow is vital for us. And Paul was just desperate that it would be seen, that it would happen. Look at his motives in verse 12 and 13. Although I wrote for you, it wasn't for the sake of the one who did the wrong. This wasn't all about sorting out this one guy. Nor for the sake of the one offended suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. He wanted them to see the relational breakdown that had occurred before God. This is what Paul wanted them to see. And he was comforted that when he wrote that letter, he saw godly grief. I love the way one person has described how this godly sorrow works out. Godly sorrow is earnest, not short-lived. Gets busy fighting sin, as it were. Godly sorrow is eager to get clearance. It eradicates all the ways in which I might make that silly mistake again. Godly sorrow leads to indignation, a hatred of sin, and not just the consequences of it. Godly sin leads to fear or alarm that God should ever see me like this again. Godly sorrow leads to a concern for restoration. Godly sorrow wants justice, even even if that means... There have to be some consequences. But look, wonderfully, he is a heart of submission to God. And I don't know about you, but looking at verse 11 just makes me think, wow, I should want that. What if verse 11 was a description of me and of us as a church? You know, sometimes, sometimes I think we see this in our church life. Every now and then, There's a a moment of conviction of sin and of sorrow in our relationship with God. And it's it's an amazingly joyful moment when it happens. It is wonderful. Because it means that in the private places, not just here in this building, but in the private places, we want God to be God more than we want our priorities and our life ambitions to be fulfilled. Now you say, I'm I'm upset when people criticise me and I don't think I have this worldly sorrow. You know, it might not be a godly sorrow, but I don't think I have a worldly sorrow. I just think all the criticism of me is always unwarranted. Let me say if that's your objection this morning, can't you see? (laughs) 
that maybe it's your love of reputation that is getting in the way here. Isn't that a case in point for us? But praise be to God that in Corinth, here was not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. And it brought Paul joy. Encouragement that the work of God was really going on in this church. Okay, last thing. I'll be quick here. Last thing to encourage us from this moment of grief this morning. Their repentance caused rejoicing. It's all about Titus in these last verses. Look at me at verse 13. Besides our, comf- our comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. See, it wasn't just Paul who was anxious about the letter. I'm sure Titus, who had to take that letter and deliver it, was pretty anxious too. But it turns out that when he got there, he didn't find his spirit wincing as that letter was read aloud. He found his heart refreshed. I take it then that they understood the word that was given to them, that they accepted it, that they actioned it, that they were full of contrition, fear and trembling and obedience. And it meant that Titus came back to Paul just overflowing with joy. You see, Paul's boasting. Maybe Titus, as he went to Corinth, thought, oh, Paul's going to be so let down. He thinks Corinth is a real church. He thinks the Spirit of God's at work there. Maybe he was worried that Paul's going to be so let down when they reject this, this criticism. But actually, that isn't what happened. They accepted it. They believed the Spirit of God was at work. And so Titus is just a bumbling ball of joy as he returns to Paul. The joy overflows. Let us not then despise moments where we are moved to live for God. Because when we hear the call to repent and we respond with godly, Grief and real repentance, it is a cause for joy at the Spirit of God being at work. Joy, deep, deep joy. And so Paul here is encouraged. He is confident. Look at verse 16. He knows this church will make room for him. They will sort out the problem of the super apostles we've been talking about. Because he's seen repentance in their hearts. Guys, can we expose moments of repentance in our hearts? We'd be encouraged when it takes place. So the question is, can we allow correction? Can we respond to it with repentance? I think there's much here for each of us to respond to. Can you, if you're honest, take a rebuke? Can you take correction? Do you allow it? Do you run from it? What does it show of us? The Corinthians repented with godly sorrow. Repentance, you see, is acceptance, accepting wrongdoing. To not repent is to reject others, isn't it? Repentance is an admission of guilt, whereas otherwise our behavior is dismissive, secretive even, deceptive. You see, all of our behavior that isn't repentance is us fighting to earn our way, isn't it? to spare our own reputation, to keep our things and our stuff. But repentance flows out of a heart that knows that we are loved already.
by a, a saviour God who has given his son to redeem us at the cross. God has promised, beloved, to take all our wrongdoing and cast it on Christ. And so when you accept correction and repent, it proves that you believe that, for you know it deep down. And it proves the Spirit's really at work. We have nothing to lose in admitting our sin because we have a Savior who takes our sin on himself. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think, I can't accept being called out. I can't back down. I can't repent. I can't admit it. I just have to admit to so much stuff that's gone wrong. I'd just be totally shamed. If ever there were a church in the Bible that was messy and had so much to be ashamed about, it was Corinth. If ever there was a church that would think it's not safe for us to admit how much we messed up, it was then. But hear this then. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Because of the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The one who casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Take hold of that. Rejoice. And repent. Shall we pray? Our loving Father, we thank you that when there are these moments of repentance in our lives, it is a moment for such joy. Father, thank you that we feel such a freedom knowing the love of Christ for us. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we try to run and hide. Forgive us for the ways in which we are prickly. We ask that there would be an openness amongst us to help one another to press on to Christ. We ask that there would be graciousness. We ask that we would endure, that we would expect, that we would evaluate, and that we would emotionally respond to correction where given. And we ask that in all of this, it would point to the wonder and glory of the gospel. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.